Almighty God, we give You thanksgiving and praise that in Your infinite grace and mercy, You chose that those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ would forever be Your children, would be Your family. That You chose us not only for ourselves and our salvation, but that through us, the Gospel could be lived out and demonstrated and proclaimed, that the nations would know that the Lord, He is God, and to know that through Jesus Christ, Sins can be forgiven, lives can be transformed, and we can have hope for the future. We pray, O Lord, that You would speak to us from Your Word and help us to know, to embrace, and to live out this glorious story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are now three Sundays into our journey through the Bible together. And so far we've learned that God created a good world. And He created good people and put them in that world. And He gave those good people a good work to do. But people rebelled against God. The first man and woman and every person since then has chosen for themselves what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And as a result, God's good world has gone bad. Now the first half of Genesis shows us just how wicked humanity had become. If you remember last week, those of you who were here, we talked about the, the tragic threefold effect of sin. That once man and woman rebelled against God, this sin that entered into the human experience. And we see that one of the effects of sin is a physical effect. Sickness and death became a part of our lives. Work became laborious. Childbearing became painful. We see natural disasters begin. and, And Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden of God's presence. But we also see a social aspect, a social effect to sin. Adam and Eve begin hiding from each other in shame and then pointing the finger at each other in blame. And we see that their relationship becomes contentious, that husband-wife relationship. Brother kills brother. Men begin to accumulate wives like property. Civilization becomes more violent and divisive and destructive. And then we see a spiritual effect to sin. Adam and Eve not only hide from each other in shame, but they hide from God in their guilt. And they even blame God for their situation. People not only begin to experience physical decay and death, but even worse, spiritual decay and death. Because they have separated themselves from God, the giver of life. They now walk in the darkness of self-determination rather than walking in the light of the Lord. They decided for themselves what is good and evil, and so they've become eternally lost in sin. That's what we learn in the first half of Genesis. It's a story of tragedy. But the first part of Genesis also tells us something about God. That though man is wicked and sinful and unfaithful, God is holy and just and completely faithful. And God is also loving, merciful, and gracious. And He always looks for a way to provide forgiveness and redemption to wayward humanity. You know, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, in spite of their hiding and guilt and shame and their pointing fingers and blame, God brings a word. In the midst of all of the negative effects of sin, in the midst of all the curses, God gives a promise that someday a Redeemer will come who will crush the head of the serpent. And begin to roll back these terrible effects of sin. 
before this Redeemer comes, of course, when we read through the Bible, things just get worse and worse. And, and the social effects of sin tear families and civilizations apart. And so we see in Genesis that God brings this judgment on the world through a great flood. Yet, even in that, God saves a remnant of people and animals to begin again His good world and His good people. And He gives Noah and his family that good work of filling the earth and forming it. But in Genesis 11, we learn that humanity once again rebels and disobeys God. They try to be the masters of their own destiny at a place called Babel. And they build this mighty city and a big tower so they can make a great name for themselves. And so God comes down and as both an act of judgment and grace, God confuses their language and scatters them so that they have to fill the earth and multiply in number. Now, if we just stop right there at Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, we might think that humanity is hopelessly lost in sin. But that's just when God launches His plan of redemption to create a new kind of people for Himself, to shine the light of salvation to everyone on earth. In Genesis 11, God curses and scatters humanity, but in Genesis 12, God promises to bless all nations of the earth. And he puts his plan in action by calling one man to leave his idolatrous ways, the ways of his culture, to leave everything he ever knew and change the course of history. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is such an important turning point in the story of God and humanity because God in these verses promises to undo the three effects of sin we just talked about. God promises to reverse the curse and to restore His good earth and the good image of God in every man, woman, and child. Listen to what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will, bless, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We see here, first and foremost, a promise of physical restoration. God promised Abraham a land. can't get much more physical than that, can you? Dirt, earth, soil. God promises this to Abraham. God later reveals to him where this promised land would be. It's the land of Canaan. What we know today is modern day Israel and Palestine and and that region today. Now this promised land would be a reflection of the Garden of Eden. It would point back and remind humanity of what they lost in the Garden of Eden. It would be a reminder of that place where God and humanity walked and talked together and lived together in perfect harmony. God would later describe this land as a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, this land would be so rich, it would be so bountiful, it would sustain and help life to flourish. And it would be a foretaste of what is to come when Jesus Christ will return and make all things new. We're not going to read it today, but if you look ahead and read in Revelation 21 and 22, it paints a beautiful picture of what a world restored to its original glory would look like. A glory even greater than the Garden of Eden. Sickness and death will be no more. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. God's people will live in resurrected bodies that will never grow old, never get sick, and never die. And we will walk on a new earth and eat freely from the tree of life. 
And this points not only to the physical restoration of the world and Jesus physically conquering death, but this also points to the ultimate in that Jesus overcame not just physical death, but spiritual death. Jesus destroyed the power of sin to separate you and me from a holy God. And so God not only promised in giving this land a physical restoration, He also promised a spiritual restoration. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses some of the most descriptive language to describe the human condition. And it's not good. He says that we are alienated from God and enemies in our mind because of our evil behavior. In Romans 5, Paul says that we are ungodly, God's enemies, and that we're powerless to do anything about it. He says we are deserving of God's wrath. People are spiritually dead. He says that we are citizens of the dominion of darkness. And he calls us rebellious enemies of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, and you know what wages are. Wages are something you earn. So what we have earned because of our sin, Paul says, is death. Physical death and spiritual death. Our sin eternally separates us from God. When Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, they began walking a path whose ultimate destination was hell. Hell is the trajectory of the human heart. That's what it is. You want to know what hell is? Hell is the natural outcome. It is the natural place every person who's ever lived is headed because they are headed away from God. Because in our sin we've turned our back on God. We're mapping our own course. And I hate to tell, but our own course doesn't lead to a very good place. So from the moment humanity was banished from the Garden of Eden, from that moment we've been trying to get back to it. Think about it. Every person instinctively knows something's wrong with the world, right? I mean, that's why you have protests going on all over the place because people say something's not right. Something's wrong. And they may not be able to say what's wrong. They may not be able to understand what's wrong. They may not be able to offer a solution to it. But we all know something is broken in this world. We know that we are broken. And we're constantly trying to fix our own brokenness. That's why self-help books... Go to the bookstore and look how huge the self-help section is counselors, fortune tellers. People play in the lottery because they hope that the money will fix their broken lives. People turn to counselors, which is a great thing. I'm not knocking that. But we, we are always looking for ways. We make New Year's resolutions. We go to the gym. We try to go on a diet. We do everything we can to fix what's wrong in our lives. And we also know that we're empty. And people are always looking for ways to fill the void, to fill this, this aching emptiness inside. And, and they turn to sex and drugs. They turn to alcohol. They turn to, to work. They just pour themselves into the work. They try to fill that emptiness with accomplishments and accolades and fame, with materialism and even with religion. But no matter what we try, we're still broken. We're still empty. We're still looking for meaning and purpose. We're still trying to get back to God and the garden. And, and that's what's happening in the story right before this in the Tower of Babel. Look, look over maybe one page in your Bible to, to Genesis 11, 3 through 4. Listen to what the people are trying to accomplish when they build this city and this tower called Babel. They said to each other, Come. Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens 
so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the earth. You see, rather than live by God's command to scatter, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as the bearers of God's image, instead, they wanted to stick together and form the ultimate clique. They rejected God's name, God's character and image in favor of making a name for themselves. They wanted to find purpose and meaning in their lives apart from God, in other words. Their name, not God's name, would be great in the earth. And they would, they would find their own way to happiness and fulfillment and, and wholeness. But no matter what we do, no matter what we do to try to fix the brokenness and fill the emptiness and heal our woundedness, it just doesn't work. It's, it's all in vain. Making a name for ourselves always ends in confusion and division, just as it did at Babel. On a side note, I always love to point this out. It's fascinating. In this whole story of the Tower of Babel, not a single name is mentioned. Oh, the irony. If people wanted to make a great name for themselves, and God doesn't even let a name be mentioned in that story. But then we come back to God's call to Abraham in the next chapter. And notice what God does promise Abraham. He says, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Here's the point. We can't make our own names great. We can't earn God's blessings. We can't save ourselves from sin and death or hell. Paul wrote in Romans 5, 6, and 8, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. And God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Not after we'd gotten our act together, not after we cleaned things up, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are powerless, ungodly sinners. We don't deserve anything but death and eternal separation from the holy God that we've turned against. But in God's love, Jesus Christ made the way for us to be made right with God. That's grace. And Abraham is the perfect example of God's Grace. When we meet Abraham, he's a nobody. He's just a, a lost sinner like any of us when we come into this world. He's a pagan idol worshiper living in the midst of pagan idol worshipers. But God chose to pour out His pure grace and love on this one man and to make incredible promises to him. In His grace, God chose Abraham. And responding in faith, Abraham obeyed God. Now, religion does the opposite of this. See, religion says we have to obey first, and then we'll receive God's blessing. That's the Tower of Babel all over again. Try to make your own names great before God to earn his, get His attention and earn His blessing. But God says, no, no. I will choose to make your name great. I will bless you. Because you can't do any of this yourself. Now, God in Genesis chapter 15, and we heard a little bit of that in our Old Testament reading, God formalizes this partnership, this covenant relationship with Abraham in Genesis 15. And they do that through this ancient covenant ritual of two parties back then, say two wealthy landowners, two nations, wanted to enter into a contractual agreement together. They would do this weird ritual where they would take an animal, they would kill it, they'd cut it in half, they'd put its two halves on either side, and they would walk down the middle of it. As if to say, 
if I break my end of this agreement, may I end up cut in two like this animal? That was sort of what that was. It was, you know, like today, you know, we might place our hand on a Bible and swear, or we enter into a contract with a handshake and we sign a bunch of papers. You know, it's definitely less gross than walking between two halves of a dead animal, so I'm in favor of our developments. But, but here's the curious thing about this episode. When God does this with Abraham, Abraham doesn't walk through the two animal carcasses. God alone does that. God's presence, represented as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, passes through by Himself. See, in this moment, God is giving Abraham and us a picture of His grace and His covenant faithfulness. Because, as I said, religion is all about us trying to get back to God in the garden. But the Bible is the story of God making all the effort to get us back to Him and to the garden. God does the work. It goes against reason to think that the Almighty Creator, Holy God, would come down and enter into a contractual relationship with sinful man. But that's exactly what God does with Abraham. And even more amazing is that God alone would pass through the ritual. It's as if God was taking the full responsibility for both him and Abraham onto himself. In other words, this was God's plan. This was God's decision. And so God would uphold this covenant relationship no matter what happens. No matter whether Abraham and his descendants would remain faithful to their end of the bargain or not, God said, I will remain faithful enough for both of us. That's the nature of grace. God does for Abraham what Abraham could never do for himself. And all Abraham had to do was respond in faith. It says in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord. He had faith in God's promise. And God credited that faith to him as righteousness. Now let's jump way ahead, a couple thousand years, to the New Testament, to Jesus. Finally, this Redeemer that God promised back in Genesis 3, this, this Redeemer who would come and crush the serpent's head, who would begin to undo the curse of sin, He's finally come. And Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He is the one to whom God is referring when He tells Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's talking about Jesus. You see, from the moment that sin entered creation, God began to reveal this plan to restore us and make all things new. Really, all of human history from that point forward, was moving everything toward the cross of Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection are the central point in God's plan to right everything that's gone wrong. And just as He did with Abraham, through Jesus Christ, God has entered into a covenant relationship with us. Remember when God alone passed through those sacrificial animals? He made that unilateral covenant with Abraham. Well, on the cross of Jesus Christ... God alone bore our shame and our guilt and our sin. And Jesus allowed Himself to be cut off from God the Father, isolated and alone, so that we could be brought back to the garden of God's presence. Paul said, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. God 
out of His grace, called Abraham and blessed Abraham to be His chosen vessel to bring spiritual restoration to the world. And all Abraham had to do was believe. And he would receive that blessing from God. And so it is with us. Out of God's grace, He offers us the blessing of spiritual restoration. And all we have to do is believe and receive that gift. Paul explains it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Even the faith to believe is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Not from ourselves. It's not from us. It's not by our works. We can't build some tower of religiousness to get to heaven. We can't earn God's favor and get God's attention by what we say and do and build so that no one can boast. It's not about you and me. It's not about us boasting and making a great name for ourselves. There's nothing in me, trust me, that I can glory in or boast about. Nothing. The prophet Isaiah says that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags compared to God's holiness. Paul even talks about his own failed attempts to earn God's blessing and forgiveness through religion. And, you know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, was the first missionary, planted churches all over the place. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the Apostle Paul. But listen to what he said in Philippians chapter 3. He said, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, if anybody could be a good Jewish follower of the, of the Old Testament law, it was Paul. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. But he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ. What is more, I compare every, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, that same righteousness that Abraham had credited to him simply because he believed. That's the central message of Genesis and of the whole Bible. That we are made in the image of God, but that image has been marred by our sin. We've become fallen. We've become wicked people. And as such, we've been cut off from God's holy presence. But God, rich in His grace and mercy... He has made a way for us to become holy so that we can regain that lost relationship with Him. We see it in Genesis 3 when God promises the future Redeemer. We see it in Genesis 12 when God displays His glorious grace in choosing Abraham and revealing that through Abraham He will bless all the earth. The story of Abraham's family is one of continual grace and mercy because even though God has chosen Abraham He's still a flawed human being, and Abraham makes plenty of mistakes. Times he distrusts God and really blows it. But God always takes Abraham's mistakes and turns them around to accomplish his purposes. And Abraham's son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, well, they both follow Abraham's poor example at times, but they also follow his good example because they too believe in the promise. They too accept this calling from God to, to go to this land and to become this great people through whom God will bless the earth. And this 
dysfunctional yet faith-filled family drama comes to a climax in the story of Joseph. The favored son of Jacob, who's now called Israel, Joseph is hated by his brothers. They're jealous of how much their dad loves him. And so they sell him into slavery in Egypt. It's a great story. I invite you to read it there at the end of Genesis. But suffice to say, through a series of misfortunes, which God is constantly turning around to use for Joseph's good, Joseph becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And a massive famine hits the land, and, and Joseph's able to lead Egypt to prepare for this famine so that all these other nations during the famine come to them for food, including Joseph's brothers, the children of Israel. So they come to Egypt looking for food, and when Joseph finally reveals himself to them, they tremble in fear because they think, oh my goodness, it's our brother Joseph we mistreated, and now he's like the vice president of Egypt. What's he going to do to us? And Joseph makes this statement that is so beautiful and so powerful because it so perfectly represents the graceful and merciful image of God. Joseph says to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You see, what people intend for harm, God can intend for good to accomplish His purpose to save the world. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of your life and mine. That's what our good and gracious God did through the cross of Christ. And that's what God wants to do in your life today. And that brings us briefly to the final way God revealed He would overcome the effects of sin through social restoration. You see, when God promised Abraham that He would bless the nations of the world through his family, that goes against what we think of human history. When we think of human history, we think of nation at war against nation. We think of kingdoms and empires conquering other peoples. But the Bible pulls back the curtain and reveals to us a different perspective on human history. It's not just the story of man's inhumanity to man. It is also the redemptive story of God fulfilling this ancient promise. See, all of the Bible and all of human history is about God's mission to save people from sin and to put the earth back right again. And through Abraham's descendants, God will create a new kind of humanity all His own. God later expands and explains this to the children of Israel in Exodus 19 when He says, Now if you obey Me fully and keep My covenant, then out of all nations you will be My treasured possession. Although the whole earth is Mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God did not choose and bless Abraham and Israel because He loved them more than anyone else. But God chose and blessed them because He loves all the world. I heard somebody say that Wednesday night at our Bible study, Reconnect, as we were talking through the, the, the Exodus part of the story. And I thought, man, that is so true. God chose Israel because He loved Everyone, not because He loved them more. And guess what? God has chosen Christians in the church not because He loves us more, but because He loves the world. And God wants us, like He wanted Israel, to shine that light to the world, to be a blessing to our neighbors so they could know the love and grace of God for themselves. God doesn't intend for us to hoard our blessings and keep Him to ourselves. That's what Babel did. Let's stick together. Let's build this big city. Let's make it all about us. But God calls us to make it all about Him and about those who need to know Him. And unfortunately, churches too often act more like Babel than they do Abraham.
Stop for a moment and think about your blessings. How God has revealed Himself to you, the things that God is teaching you, how He has revealed Himself to you and helping you to grow. If you're a Christian today, you've received the greatest gift there is to possibly receive. Are you going to keep that to yourself? Are you going to share it with others? Think about those right now who shared with you how to become a Christian. Think about those who prayed for you to come to faith in Christ. I want to take just a moment, and I know we're running low on time, but I want to take a moment and introduce something very briefly to our church family. Because I think it's a great way that we can begin to be that blessing to our neighbors and to our community and to the world. And it's what better way to start that than by praying, right? And praying for our neighbors. Imagine if you could pray for 100 of your closest neighbors by name. What would God do in McDuffie County? What would God do in Thompson if all the people of this church were praying for a hundred of their neighbors by name? Let's watch this brief video. Throughout the month of February, we're going to encourage you to sign up. By the end of February, I want to be able to put up a map on the screen to show the coverage of our church in McDuffie County in prayer for our community. So I want to invite you to look in the cornerstone. There's a lot more details and information in this month's corner, this coming month's cornerstone. Um, and we're here at the church to help you as well. And starting next Sunday, there will be an opportunity in the order of worship to sign up. If you just, maybe you're a little nervous about going on the computer and trying to do this yourself, we can set this up for you and we can even print out your list of neighbors and give you a paper copy. We want to make this as accessible to everyone as we can. This is a small way that we can be a part of... of following Abraham's example of being a people of God who are seeking to be a blessing to the community and the neighbors around us. And I'm excited about this, and I hope that you all will join me in praying for our community. You know, the greatest thing we can pray for our community is that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Maybe you today are sitting here and you are so aware of the brokenness in your life. You're aware of the sin that is keeping you away from God. You know that you're empty, and maybe you've been trying to build a tower of good deeds and, and going to church and, and giving money or whatever else. You've been trying to do all these right things, but you realize that you've never just believed. You've never just opened up your heart and just thrown yourself at the mercy of God and just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin and save me and bless me. I want to live for you. If you've never done that today, I invite you to come as we sing in a moment. I'd love nothing more than to help you do that today. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've done that, maybe today you need to recommit yourself to being a blessing to your community and the neighbors and the world around you. Maybe today you need to, to follow God by uniting with this church and saying, I want to be a part of a church that is trying to impact this community for the glory of God and for His grace to be known. Whatever God has spoken to your heart, let's stand together and let's sing about the faith that God gives us to believe.